Good morning. Hope everyone had a Merry Christmas yesterday. Thank you for braving the massive blizzard that's outside. Um, well, it's good to be here this morning. Uh, if you would turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Being the day after Christmas, I decided I uh, wanted to go over one of the oldest Christmas hymns ever written. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, if you would, follow along with me. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Dear Father, God, as we come on the other side of Christmas and all the busyness of the day yesterday, Lord, uh, I pray that we've had time to reflect on what it means that you sent your son to be born in a manger, to be human, to be God with us, to be Emmanuel, to, to walk with us, to, to tabernacle with us, to, to dwell with us, Lord, as humans, to be one of us live a perfect life, to die on the cross, Lord, for our sins, a sacrifice, Lord, to be raised on the third day, to be exalted to the right hand of you, Lord, to be given the name that's above every name, Lord. I pray this morning as we go over this text, Lord, that we not only remember your son in the manger, Lord, but we reflect and remember as we took communion the sacrifice he made for us, Lord. So be with us this morning as we go over this important text in Scripture. I pray that your words are spoken, not mine. In your son's name, amen. Now this is debated, but most scholars think the passage I just read you, Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 10, is actually an early church hymn. Uh, maybe a song that was sin, sung in the, the early church. And there's a couple reasons why scholars believe this. The first is that the, the wording and rhythm of the passage seems like it was a song as you examine other songs and poetry within Scripture. A second reason is there's some words and phrases that are used in this portion of Scripture that aren't really used anywhere else in all of Paul's writings. So it seems like Paul was using a song that was probably well-known in the early church, some kind of song. We don't know much about it, but, but a song to make a point. In fact, this is what John MacArthur writes about this passage. The incarnation is the central miracle of Christianity, the most grand and wonderful or wonderful of all the things that God has ever done. That miracle of miracles is the theme of Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Some scholars believe the passage was originally a hymn sung by early Christians to commemorate and celebrate the incarnation of the Son of God. Again, a, a song about the incarnation, therefore, a Christmas song. It has been called a, 
a Christological gem, a theological diamond that perhaps sparkles brighter than any other in all of Scripture. In a simple but brief yet extraordinarily profound way, it describes the condescension of the second person of the Trinity to be born, uh, to live, and to die in human form to provide redemption for fallen mankind. Again, this song uh, the sinners around the incarnation. It's it's one of the oldest uh, uh, songs that we know of in, in the early church. If it truly is a song, therefore uh, a, a Christmas hymn. It's one of the oldest ever written. And so I thought it would be appropriate to cover it today, the day after Christmas. And um, so I have four points of the sermon this morning. It's pretty simple: the incarnation, the crucifixion, the exaltation, and then finally we'll get some application from this passage being the the fourth point. So let's start with the incarnation again. Look at verse 5. It says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now there's two phrases in these two verses that I want to point out. And the, the first one is this. Who, though he was in the form of God, that phrase, the form of God, did not count equality with God. So the two phrases are the form of God and equality with God. These two phrases are parallel statements, and they make the point that Jesus was both in the form of God and and equal to God. And when you put these together, it's clear that Jesus is fully God. This is in agreement, of course, with the rest of Scripture. And so I want to go over a couple passages that just make it clear that Jesus himself was divine or God. Colossians 115 says this, he, this is Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. Think about that for a second. He's the image of the invisible God. When you see Jesus, you see God. First John, or not first John, John 1 verse 1 says this, in the beginning was the word. Now, before we move on, just just think about it. I, I know we know John 1 1. Um, well, but that's a remarkable statement when you think about it. John is is quoting Genesis one one here, which says in the beginning, God, but he changes it and says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you get down to verse fourteen. It says this, and the Word became flesh. The Word is Jesus, the Logos. The word became flesh and dwelt or tented or tabernacled with us. Jesus became flesh. He's God incarnate. John 8, 58 says, Jesus said to them, this is Jesus talking, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, Jesus existed before Abraham. And he's clearly alluding to the I am statements that we see throughout the Old Testament. John 17, verse 5, again, Jesus is speaking. He's praying to the Father. He says this, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. When you think about that statement, it's remarkable. Glorify me, first of all. And he says, with the glory that I had before the world existed, before creation existed, 
we shared a glory. There's, there's this, this idea that Jesus is equating himself with God. John 17, verse 25 again, or 24, he's praying. He says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. Not to see God's glory, but to see my glory. That you have given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. Hebrew chapter 1 verse 1 says this, Long ago and many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom, he, uh, through whom also he created the world. He, again, this is Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, he upholds the universe together. He upholds the universe just by speaking. Jesus is God. The Bible is just super clear on this. He is divine. He's God the Son. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is in the form of God. He is equal to God. But look at what verse 6 says. Philippians 2 verse 6 says this. Who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, the Greek word for that that's translated grass is apogmos, which could be translated something that you grab or take by force, something that's not yours and you go and take by force, or something that you have that you're holding on to with force. So someone else can't take it away from you. In the context, the second definition makes way more sense because it's clear that Jesus already had the form of God and equality with God. Therefore, the verse is saying Jesus did not hold on to it or grasp it with force. The ESV translates this well. It says this, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. Verse 7, But emptied himself... By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, verse 7, especially that, that first part, but emptied himself. Verse 7 is one of the most debated passages in all of scriptures. And I just want to start by saying there's much mystery here. Whenever we talk about or whenever I preach about the, the Trinity or the Incarnation, um, we're really treading on holy ground. It's it's something that we need to be very careful. How did Jesus empty himself? Well, one thing we can be confident on is that Jesus didn't empty himself of his divinity. The Bible is clear that Jesus was, is, and always will be truly God and or truly divine in his nature. He didn't empty himself of his divine nature, in other words. So, What does it mean that he emptied himself? I think you can look at scripture and and many men much smarter than me have done this and and come with different things that that Jesus has emptied himself as we look at at his life here on earth. But I think it's probably safer to just let the the text speak for itself. So look what it says, verse 7. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. In other words, it's subtraction by addition, if that makes sense. 
There's some things that you add to you that's actually subtraction. He emptied himself by adding two things, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. So let's just look at those two two phrases. Taking the form of a servant, the first one, that, that word servant there is doulos, which is a very commonly used word in the New Testament. It means servant or slave. It's a very common word in um, uh, the first century in Roman because there are so many slaves, and that's the word for slave, doulos, servant, or it's often translated in your scriptures, bond servant. Which leads to a question, who was Jesus' servant to? Well, clearly God the Father. I think we see that in the Gospels pretty clearly. John, for example, the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 30, says this, I do nothing, this is Jesus speaking, I do nothing on my own, on my own as I hear I judge, and my judgments... My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, the will of the Father who sent him, in other words. John chapter 12, verse 49, for I have not spoken on my own authority. This is again, Jesus speaking. But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. In other words, Jesus is a servant of his father and he only speaks and says and and does what the father tells him to do. This is clearly seen in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prays to, to his father, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was a servant of his father. But, but here's the amazing thing that we need to understand that Jesus was also a servant of man. Matthew 20, verse 28 says this, Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's, a, there's no way you can, can serve more than giving your life completely. And that's what Jesus did. Luke 22, verse 27 says this, For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus was both. He came as both a a servant of God, a servant of the Father, and a servant to men. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. The second way that Jesus emptied himself was being born in the likeness of man. Of men. Jesus became man. That's what we just celebrated. Right? Truly man. 100% God, 100% divine, 100% human, 100% man. And I know the math there doesn't add up, but it's beyond our comprehension. It's a mystery. But Jesus was human. He served God and he served humanity by becoming man. Just like all of us, he was born. He was a baby. He had a mom and dad. He, He had siblings. He had a body of flesh. Meaning, at points he was hungry. He was thirsty. He got tired. He slept. He was even tempted, yet sinless. 
He was 100% man. In fact, there was nothing about his appearance that would have stood out in a crowd. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 42 says, They said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph? In other words, we know his dad. Whose father and mother we know. We, we know his parents. How does he say, I have come down from heaven? Listen, he had the appearance of a human because he was 100% human. 100% God, 100% man. Look at verse 6. It says this, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of of men. So my first point this morning is the incarnation. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Second point is the crucifixion. I feel like every post-Christmas Sunday, which we're in right here, the Sunday after Christmas, I, I just always want to focus on the crucifixion because we get our mindset on this little baby and we forget that he grew up and he died on the cross for our sins. And I'm so thankful that this Sunday is a Sunday that we celebrate that at the Lord's table. Look at verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. That, that word humbled is, is interesting here. Is the, the Greek word has this connotation of lower, humble, humiliate, like make low. But the, the reason why it's interesting, it, it, it's used frequently in the first century in, re, in reference to slaves who have lost their prestige or status in the community and become a slave. This is the word that's used here. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. I hope you're seeing in this this passage here, again, I believe it's a song that was sang, and, and you can kind of see the poetry in it because it's like this downward spiral that's happening. Jesus was was God. He was in the form of God. He was equal to God, but he didn't hold on to it, right? And we have this downward spiral from there. He emptied himself. Not only did he empty himself, he became a, a, a servant. Not only that, he, he was born in the likeness of men. And not only that, he humbled himself. And not only that, he became obedient to the point of death, right? He obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's the bottom of the spiral as low as it gets. The statement, even death on the cross, would have been shocking in the first century. Jesus didn't just die. He died on a cross. I mean, just think about that, where the song starts, Jesus equal to God, and where it gets to its lowest point, death on a cross. The cross was the most inhumane, cruel way of killing a human being. It was just pure torture, and I don't want to go into all the details of how you would die on a cross, but there probably isn't a worse way of dying. It was considered a, just a, a horrific act, so much so that it's actually hard to find a description of it in antiquity. Right? Even in the Gospels, there's not just a clear description of crucifixion and what it is. It's not that it wasn't, it was rare. They had crucifixions all the time. The Roman government used it to, to, to tell other countries and other enemies, don't mess with the Roman government because this is what we'll do to you. 
It wasn't that it was rare. It just the, the cultured Greeks and Romans kind of ignored it. They just didn't talk about it because it was such a gruesome act. Even the word cross was offensive just to say it. I've said this before from the pulpit. I, I just wonder if you took someone from the first century and brought them to modern like America and they saw crosses everywhere, what they would think. The cross was a symbol of death. Horrific torture and death. And listen, if crucifixion wasn't bad enough, think about what the song is saying. The Son of God came to earth to be with us, to tabernacle with us, to tent, to dwell with us, to walk with us as a servant, as a human. The promised Messiah, as we saw last week, the consolation of Israel, the hope of Israel, the the hope of mankind, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, God incarnate. We celebrated this yesterday. He came, and instead of worshiping him, we nailed him to the cross. This is man's rebellion towards God. I mean, this is what we, we do. This is where our hearts are ever since the garden. We just can't get to God, but when he became human, that's what we did. We crucified him. The crucifixion of Christ was the greatest evil ever committed by mankind. It's a greater evil than any war, greater evil than any genocide, greater evil than any holocaust. You know, here's the crazy thing, too. When you look at Philippians and and many other places in Scripture, it's clear that God the Father was involved in this. Look what it says in Philippians 2, verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Well, who was Jesus being obedient to? The Father. Becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He obeyed the Father and went to the cross. In other words, it was God's will, God the Father's will, that Jesus would go to the cross. Jesus made this very clear himself when he said, again in Luke chapter 22, verse 41, and he, this is Jesus, withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, which implies that it was God's will that Jesus would go to the cross. The Father's will. Why would the Father crush his own son? Well, we'll be back in Philippians. I I just want to turn to Isaiah chapter 53 real quick, verse 2. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2. I think Isaiah is just an appropriate book to be in during Christmas because we have so many prophecies that we find in Isaiah that we, that we go over during the Christmas season. In fact, the consolation of Israel, the comforter of Israel, we went over Isaiah 40, verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, pardon their iniquities. And I said in that sermon that we don't understand how God can pardon someone's iniquities until we get to Isaiah chapter 53. Here it is. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. This is talking about Jesus who grew up as a human. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him 
and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, Jesus didn't come looking divine. He didn't come in his glory looking holy or, or even like a king. He was human, a lowly carpenter's son, a, a nobody. And he was born in a manger, in a stable. His stature and appearance was nothing special just by looking at him. Right? This is the Christmas story. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their face, hide their face, faces, he was despised and, he was, and we esteemed him not. Why? why? Why is this? Well, verse 4 tells us, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. In other words, we have all sinned. Therefore, the Lord has laid on, on him the iniquities of us all. In other words, God, the Father, actively made Jesus pay the price of sin we owed so that we could have peace, so that we could be healed, so that we could be saved, we could be forgiven. That day when Jesus was crucified, the Pharisees, Pilate, Herod, all the people surrounding the crucifixion that had their hands involved in it, really just wanted Jesus to be dead. They wanted him to, to be quieted. They just wanted to make him go away. They committed the greatest evil and sin ever witnessed. But at the very same time, by God's hand and plan, according to Acts 2, God used that great evil and sin to bring the greatest good man has ever witnessed. Man intended evil, the greatest evil. God intended good, the greatest good ever. You know what's amazing? Is Jesus could have stopped it at any point. (laughs) He makes that clear. He wasn't helpless. He was a victim, but he was a willing victim. He could have stopped it at any point. He told Peter in Matthew 26, verse 53, Do you think I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? In the Old Testament, there's a story of one angel, I think, wiped out like 100,000 people, one angel. (laughs) Imagine what 12 legions of angels could do. The whole Roman Empire. Jesus could have saved himself at any moment, but he didn't. Because if he did, we would be lost. If he did, we would still be in our sins, destined for destruction and wrath and eternity and hell, paying off our eternal debt. Instead, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that we could be saved. Turn back with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, 
Again, we see the incarnation of Jesus in this passage. It's the first point. The crucifixion of Jesus is the second point. The third point this morning is the exaltation of Jesus. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Let me stop right there because I want you to see the subject of the sentence. The subject is God, meaning he's the one acting, God the Father. God highly exalted him, meaning Jesus didn't exalt himself. I just want to point that out because if you back up a little bit, it says that Jesus, he, he's the subject, and that, that uh, a little bit earlier, he humbled himself, but he didn't exalt himself. He let the Father exalt him, meaning even in Jesus's exaltation, there's humility. He let the Father exalt him. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. Now let me ask a question. What is the name that's above every name? Before you yell it out, I'm not Craig. <laughs> Just because I feel like most people get this wrong. I don't want to embarrass you. I just want to, want to remind you who's writing this. It's Paul, right, who's a Jew. The name above every name. Now I want you to remember this too. This is probably a song that was sung by the early church, and the early church was mostly Jews. Jews like Paul, who knew their Old Testament well. Jews who knew the book of Exodus, what we're going through, extremely well. Who is the or what is the name that's above every name? Good job. Yahweh, God's name. Verse 9, therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus. Now this is important. Jesus, right, in Greek, is in the genitive form. In other words, it's in the possessive form, not the dative form. It's not at the name, comma, Jesus. Or at the name that is Jesus. Those would be bad interpretations. And in other words, Jesus isn't the name that's being talked about here. It's the name of Jesus. Right? It's the name that Jesus owns. It's the name that's been given to Jesus. It's the name that's been bestowed on him. Well, what's that? What name? Verse 10, let's keep going. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. The name given to Jesus is Lord. It's not Jesus. In fact, Jesus was a pretty common name in Jesus' day. I mean, even to this day, in many cultures, the, the name Jesus is a common name given to people. It's not Jesus that's being talked of here. It's the name of Jesus, and it's clear that Jesus is Lord. It's Lord. This points to the lordship of Jesus, I believe. After the crucifixion, after the death and burial, Jesus on the third day was raised. And after that, he ascended to the right hand of the Father and he was given the title Lord. He was given authority. In fact, in Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And who's the only person that could give that authority to Jesus? Father. Therefore, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and in earth 
and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's been given authority by the Father. Which really, I believe, highlights the importance of this title, Lord. In fact, if you don't recognize Jesus as Lord of your life, you're not saved. You hear that? If you don't recognize Jesus as Lord of your life, it's clear, it's a clear sign that you are not saved. Let me just read from a theologian named Griffin Thomas. He says this, Our relation to Christ is based off his death and resurrection. And that means his lordship. Indeed, the lordship of Christ over the lives of his people was the very purpose for which he died and rose again. We have to acknowledge Christ as our Lord. Sin is rebellion. And it's only as we surrender to him as Lord that we receive our pardon from him as our Savior. We have to admit him to reign on the throne of our hearts. And it is only when he is glorified in our hearts as king, the Holy Spirit enters and abides. Listen to verse 10 again. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name given to Jesus is Lord. But there's a problem with that because the word Lord is a title, not a name, right? So let me ask this question again, and you guys answered it so well. What is the name that's above every name? Yahweh. And I believe this is the name that's been given to Jesus in this song because of Christ's obedience. And let me explain why, and I've explained this before, but I think it's important to get our mind wrapped around this. In the Old Testament, the name of God was extremely important. In Exodus, we've seen this, obviously, it's the theme of Exodus, right? It's used 398 times, but it's used in, in all the books of the Old Testament. Genesis, 165 times. In Deuteronomy, 550 times. In the Psalms, the, the name of God is used 695 times. In Jeremiah, it's used 726 times. In the Old Testament, Yahweh, the name of God, is used well over 6,000 times, almost 7,000 times. But, as I've pointed out a number of times, the full name of God, Yahweh, is not used once in the New Testament. Why is that? Well, in ancient Hebrew, they didn't write out their vowels. They only had consonants, and that's because vowel sounds were just passed down verbally. And you can do this in English. I've talked about this. If you write out a sentence, it's just the consonants without the vowels. You can read it perfectly fine. In fact, your eyes kind of put the vowels where they should be. <laughs> it's almost like if you read it, you're like, oh, you're right, there isn't vowels, you know, if you've ever done it before. But it was passed down verbally that you would just hear where the vowel sounds are supposed to be, and they only wrote out the consonants. But because of that, and because of not pronounce, pronouncing a, a word um, over time, if you don't use the word or use a word in Hebrew, you lose the pronunciation of it because it wasn't passed down verbally or it wasn't written down because they didn't write down the vowels. So if you didn't pass it down verbally, you'd lose their original pronunciation of the word in Hebrew. Well, that's exactly what happened with God's name. 
over centuries, Jews stopped pronouncing the name of God because they thought it was too holy. They didn't pronounce the name because they were so afraid of blasting the name of God, so they just didn't use it, right? They were legalistic about it, just like they were legalistic about a lot of things. They didn't use it. They avoid using the name, meaning over centuries of not pronouncing the word, they lost the pronunciation of God's name. We only have four consonants, Y, H, W, H in English. Right, that's a transliteration, Y, H, W, H. The vowels are guesses. So when I say Yahweh, that's just a guess. Right, educated guess of what the name of God could have been. Which leads to a question, what's written in the original Hebrew manuscripts? Well, what's written is just those four letters, Y, H, W, H. We just don't know the vowels, the sounds that go between those consonants. But traditionally, when the Jews read the Old Testament, when they came across the YHWH, they would pronounce the word Adonai, which is the word Lord. So they would say Lord when they come across the YHWH. Adonai means Lord or Master. That's why most of your Bible translations has the word the Lord in the Old Testament, capital L-O-R-D, in place of YHWH. It's just following that tradition. Right, of God's name. Here's where it gets interesting. Jesus and the apostles used a Greek version of the Old Testament. I've talked about this a lot, called the Septuagint. Guess what Greek word is used in the Septuagint in replace of YHWH? English, Lord, and for my Greek person over there, um, it's Kyrios. In other words, the Jews during the time of Jesus, think about this. All the Jews during the time of Jesus related the word Lord or Kyrios to the name of God, Yahweh. They saw them as related. That's what you would say, the Lord, to refer to God's name. Well, guess what word is used more than any other word to describe Jesus in the New Testament? Kyrios. Let me just give you two examples of this. Romans 10.9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... Kyrios, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is a curse, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. But look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Look at what it says. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. For a Jew, that's Yahweh. So that the name of Jesus, in other words, not Jesus, but the name given to Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Kyrios. I believe that should be capital L-O-R-D. To the glory of God the Father. In other words, Paul is pointing us back to the name of God, Yahweh. That's the name given to Jesus. Jesus Christ is Yahweh. In fact, I know that this is the correct interpretation because Paul, the song, is quoting, right, in verse 10 and 11 from a poem in Isaiah 45. And the poem starts like this. I am Yahweh and there is no other. And then it goes on to say, every knee should bow to that name, right? And every tongue confess 
that he is Yahweh and there is no other. Jesus has been given the name of God, Yahweh. And this is the amazing part, to the glory of God, the Father. Now, don't ask me to explain that, but there's obviously this beautiful acknowledgement of the Trinity here. In fact, the depth of this son is incredible. We should be spending weeks on this passage, and we're going through it quickly. Which leads us to the application. This is where I want to end this morning. I think one of the most amazing parts, amazing things about this psalm, is there this hymn that's being sung here that, that's been written out by Paul, is why Paul wrote it out in the first place, its purpose. I mean, think of what we just went over. Okay, we went over the incarnation, right? That's Christmas. Right, Jesus becoming a man, Philippians 2, 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We, we went over the crucifixion, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. That's Good Friday. Right, Philippians 2, 8 says this, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We went over the exaltation of Jesus, that's the resurrection, and then eventually the ascension, right? Jesus giving the name that's above every name, Jesus giving the name of God, Yahweh. Philippians 2, verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the, the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, the glory of God the Father. In other words, this, this hymn, this song, this portion of scripture gives meaning to the, and to the, the theology, gives meaning and theology behind the birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, even the second coming of Jesus, right? Every tongue will confess on earth and under the earth. The song gives the theology behind Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter. In fact, this is my Easter sermon. We'll have it next few months. It explores the depth of the Trinity. It covers the gospel, the story of Christ that we see in the gospels. And I could just keep going. But what amazes me is why Paul wrote it in the first place. He wrote it that the church would be unified. That we would love one another. That we would be humble. In fact, look at Ephesians or Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. This is the context of this great hymn. And as I read this, I'm just going to ask you, examine your hearts. So, this is verse 1. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ or any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and, and sympathy, complete my joy. This is Paul begging this church. As an apostle, as, a, as like a pastor of this church, as like a father to this church, he's begging them. He's saying, complete my joy by being of the same mind. By being unified. Having the spirit, or having the, the same love, having the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of, and of one mind. Do nothing from, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Jesus humbled himself. That's the context, right? 
He's our example. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then the song starts. He emptied himself. He became a servant, born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself. How much so? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He sacrificed his life. And that's our example. That's what we're called to do for each other. We are to have the same mind. We are not to to act toward one another from selfish ambition or conceit, but humility like Christ. We are to count others more significant than ourselves. We are to look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. The unity of the church is that important. I mean, you just see it in, in so many different letters in the New Testament, so many different places. Our commitment to each other, our commitment to the local church is that important. Right? That this great hymn inspired by God, as deep as it gets, Paul uses it to give us an example on how we are to treat each other. How are we to be committed and loving one another? I just think that's amazing. Jesus is our model of true humility and selflessness. God, Father, I just saying that, I can only call you Father because I've been adopted into your family and I've been adopted into your family because of what your son has done for me. That he may have been born in a manger, in a stable, he may have been a little child, Lord, that, that we celebrate on Christmas, but the fact that he grew up, lived a sinless life and died on the cross for me, for us, that we could call you Father, that we can come and approach you. His humility, his willingness not to to hold on to what he truly deserves, to take the form of a servant, to become obedient, come in the likeness of men, obedient to death, even death on the cross, Lord. Let that humble us as a church, Lord. I pray that we see how important love for one another is according to your word, Lord. Help us to be like Christ and and follow his example of true humility, putting others before ourselves. In your son's name, amen.